One of the most famous songs in Christian history is certainly Amazing Grace by John Newton, right? Probably everybody has heard of that song, Amazing Grace. The song begins with those memorable words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That opening line captures the profound reality that God draws sinners into his presence, into his kingdom as they receive salvation. However, salvation is not just a past experience. Salvation is also a present experience. And that is captured in the song as well. The next line says, I once was lost, but what? Now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So salvation has that past and present experience, but did you know that it also has a, pre, it's a future experience as well? And that song, that great song, illuminates that in addition. It says in the, a, a little bit later, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've known less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So salvation can refer to the past, we were saved, the present, we are saved, and to the future, we will be saved. And Scripture speaks of salvation in all three ways. But interestingly, most often, it speaks of salvation in the future, as we will be saved from God's wrath on Judgment Day and will enjoy the new creation for the rest of eternity. Today, we're going to see all three aspects of salvation but with a little bit of a focus on the future. In our passage, the Apostle Peter describes what is our eternal inheritance, what is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And he talks about how our salvation is secure. It cannot be test taken away from us. He also talks about how we go through trials in this life but these trials, God can actually use to strengthen our faith, not diminish them. And then finally, our salvation was hinted at in the Old Testament, but now we get to experience a much greater revelation than anything they would have understood, those great prophets in the Old Testament. What awaits us far exceeds that. We have such an incredible privilege to be living on this side of the cross. So even though it's cold outside, it's a brutal January day, this passage should warm your heart. Amen? Amen. Our great salvation that we have to experience, past, present, and future. So last week... We began our series on the book of 1 Peter, so I invite you to turn there, the book of 1 Peter. We just covered the greeting of the letter, two verses. It's one of the most theologically rich and profound greetings of all the New Testament letters. If you recall, Peter refers to his readers as elect exiles, not physical exiles, but spiritual exiles, referring to the fact that this fallen, broken world is not our home. We are awaiting the new creation, right? But Peter also challenges us that he doesn't want us to have an escapist mindset. 
He doesn't want us to escape this fallen world. He actually wants us to engage this fallen world. And he's going to do that as we march through the pages of 1 Peter. Now, the rest of, first, uh, the, the, rest of the greeting explained why we are exiles. God chose us out of the world. Remember that Trinitarian pattern we saw, how the Father foreknew us, the Spirit set us apart, and the Son cleanses us. That's why we are spiritual exiles. We have been drawn out of the world, and we're waiting for Christ to return. But we have a mission in the meantime. So today we're going to cover verses 3 through 12. You want to look down at your Bible, we're going to cover all of that text. What's interesting that in the original Greek language, that is actually one sentence, okay? So that is one very long sentence, but we're going to cover all of that ground today. There's three parts to our passage, the security of our salvation, the testing of our salvation, and the privilege of our salvation. First part is the security of our salvation. Let's read verses 3 to 5 together. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. So Peter begins the body of this letter by blessing God, by praising God for our salvation. Notice that he starts off by saying that God has caused us to be born again. God has caused us to be born again. What does that mean, the the new birth? What is Peter talking about? Well, Scripture teaches that you and I are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Meaning, by nature, we do not seek God. We do not have a personal relationship with Him. We don't seek Him in a redemptive way. Ephesians 2.1 soberly says that you and I are dead in our sins and trespasses. Instead, we like to be autonomous. We like to pursue our own selfish, sinful ways. We don't like to submit to the authority of God in our lives, and we do not want to bring Him honor in all things. That's our natural inclination when you and I come into this world. We are spiritually dead. So Jesus teaches, hear this, that you must be born again. John 3, 3, Jesus declared, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Every person must experience the new birth to receive salvation. But notice Who is the one that causes this? God is the one who causes us to be born again. No one causes their own physical birth, do they? You don't do that. You might be pretty creative and you might be a genius, but you cannot create your own birth, can you? You can't dial it in. You can't dial in that delivery. It doesn't work that way. No one can cause their physical birth and no one can cause their spiritual birth. God does it, and He does it according to His great mercy. He does not owe us salvation. He could have left us spiritually dead. But He shows us great mercy. Now before moving on, let me just ask you. 
Block off everything for a moment. Let me ask you a question. Has that happened in your life? Has that happened in your life? Can you say, yes, God has made me spiritually alive, a new creature in Christ, that there is a difference that God has done in my life where I can look to the past and I can look to the present and see that God has made me spiritually alive. If not, I urge you this morning to turn from your sin and to trust Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You know, becoming a Christian is not kind of like a New Year's resolution where you try to work a little bit harder in something. No, it is about God making you a new person. Amen? He's caused us to be born again. Next, Peter describes the result of our new birth. What We possess what we just sang about, right? A living hope. A living hope. Now, I want you to know that the biblical word hope is different than the way we use it in our common English language. We might say, you know, I hope there's no traffic on the interstate. It's kind of a wish or whatever. Hope in Scripture is is a future certainty. It hasn't happened yet, but it's certain it's going to happen when it comes time, right? So our hope is a living hope. It should empower and affect all of our lives right? This isn't something you do on Sunday morning. It is a living hope. It carries into all of life. Peter mentions that our living hope comes through the resurrection of Christ. You see that there in the text. Our salvation was achieved and guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection. You know, all all our hope goes back to that empty tomb, doesn't it? When Jesus rose again, Our hope is anchored in Jesus, who is the living hope. It's a great passage so far, isn't it? Temperature warming up a little bit. Your heart warming up a little bit. Let's keep going. Peter gives some of the strongest promises about the security of our salvation. We possess an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. Inheritance. Now, in the Old Testament, that word inheritance was often used to talk about the promised land that Israel was given, that land that they inherited. You see that quite a bit in the Old Testament. But now that word is carried over into the New Testament and given a whole lot more significance because it means our future salvation with resurrection bodies, living with God forever with all of his people and living in a new creation that is our inheritance that cannot be taken away it lasts forever it's imperishable it's unfading and God is going to keep it for us no one's going to take it away from us because God is keeping it for us this past week I read about a woman named Athena Roussel. She's the granddaughter of the Greek shipping tycoon, Aristotle Onassis. That name ring a bell? One of the world's richest men in his day. Now, unfortunately, Athena's mother died when she was only three years old, leaving Athena to be the sole heiress of her grandfather's vast estate, a boatload of money. Ha ha, right? Right? 
55% of the estate went to Athena. The other 45 went to a foundation. Now, Athena was too young to receive the inheritance, so it was kept for her. When she was 18, she received her inheritance. That's quite a birthday present. Probably a little bit bigger of a present than you and I got when we turned 18. <laughs> Likewise, our inheritance, our imperishable inheritance is being kept for us. And as amazing as her inheritance was, our inheritance trumps that because it is imperishable and God is keeping it for us. It cannot be squandered. It cannot be taken away. It is there for us. And if that were not enough, God's power is guarding us so that we receive it. In other words, not only is the inheritance secure, but we are secure so that we don't blow it. One scholar notes that the Greek word guarded was, quote, used of putting garrisons in a city to protect it from foes. So God guards us so that we receive salvation. Now, sometimes believers can grow fearful about losing their salvation. They might get caught up in a sin or might grow apathetic or whatever. A genuine believer sometimes can be kind of upset and distraught that I could lose my salvation in the days ahead. Here is where your theology affects your life. Our salvation is secure based on God's steadfast promises. We see it here in this passage about as clear as day. But it's not just Peter who teaches this. It's all throughout the scripture. Jesus affirms it. In John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I mean, could you have it said any clearer? How about Paul? Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, speaking of salvation, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. They all say the same thing. A Christian enjoys the security of salvation. And you know what? Peter knew this promise well from his own experience. Think about Peter's life. The night before the cross, Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. What did Peter do? He denied him. And friend, when you read that passage, you need to understand, this wasn't just kind of a casual slip of the tongue. Peter firmly and resolutely denied Jesus. He turned his back on him. And Jesus, so to speak, put his hand on his shoulder and said, you're not going anywhere. And in fact, Jesus told him before it ever happened, he said these words to him, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And boy, we 
are tempted to fail sometimes, aren't we? Probably many of us have wondered sometimes that I might be like Peter and turn my back to the Lord, but He reaches out His hand on our back and turns us around time and time again. Our salvation is secure. So does the security of our salvation mean that we will avoid trials in this life? Would be nice, wouldn't it? But that's not the case. But this leads to the second part, the testing of our salvation. The testing of our salvation. God tests His people. God tests His people. You realize that? Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. God tested Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. He tested Jesus for 40 days out in the wilderness before He began His messianic ministry. And as we will read, God tests us through trials with the aim of refining our faith. His test build us up, not tear us down. Keep that in mind. Let's read what he says. Verses 6 to 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in verse 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice. What's the this he's talking about? Well, the this is everything he just covered in verses 3 to 5. Our salvation, past, present, and future. But our salvation does not preclude us from experiencing trials. Now, notice he says various trials. Peter talks a lot about persecution in this letter. But I think here he's talking about more than just persecution. He's talking about financial struggle. He's talking about relationship fallout. He's talking about sickness. In this life, we experience trials. And those trials hurt. Peter does not gloss over them. Notice what he says, how they grieve us. They grieve us. Especially when they might seem pointless. Especially when it's not something we did to ourselves. These trials can grieve us. So God is not going to completely remove us from trials. Especially since we are exiles. But He wants us to see them from His vantage point. So will you listen to what the Word of God says this morning about this? A whole lot more could be said, but let me give you three points from our passage about trials that will help us today. First, trials are brief. In verse 6, Peter says that trials are, quote, for a little while. Peter is not being flippant. He's not being dismissive. He experienced severe persecution. He would lose his life for his faith. And he knew that trials can last for a long time in this life. But please hear me out. Comparatively speaking, trials are brief. Comparatively speaking, in light 
of eternity. These trials are brief. When we think about eternal salvation waiting for you and I, these trials are brief. Our trials are like a spiritual boot camp is what I would say. They last for a little while. And then we're ushered into eternity. The boot camp is hard. But in light of eternity, it's so brief. It is so brief. Think about how even in your own life, things that you had happened to you in your past, and now you maybe think, oh, I can't even really remember that. And that's just a few years here in this life, friend. We're talking about eternity. Like the song said, 10,000 years. We have no less days to sing God's praise. Trials are brief. This isn't just kind of some nice little word of optimism. This is reality, friend. It really is brief. Second point about trials, they test the genuineness of our faith. Trials are not random or meaningless, but they refine and strengthen our faith just like gold and fire. They test, our testing purifies our faith and demonstrates its genuineness. Nothing shows a person's character like trials, right? The old analogy about a toothpaste tube, right? When that toothpaste tube gets squeezed, you see what's inside the tube, right? When you and I get squeezed, we see what's inside. Will we become embittered toward God? Or will we trust Him? Will we draw nearer to God? Or will we fall away? I want you to be encouraged, friend. Based on what we just read, God will preserve genuine believers so that their faith will endure just like Peter and his threefold denial. God kept him. Genuine faith will endure by the power of God. And indeed, God seeks not just to have our faith endure through trials, but he wants us to grow through trials. Yes, not just to escape but to grow through these trials. James captures this so well in the beginning of his letter. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Would you say that's true? Have you seen that in your own life? I think it's so true that we often grow the most when you and I are stuck in a trial. And instead of just trying to get out of it, we say, Lord, how can we grow through this trial? What purpose might you have in mind for me? And we grow in the midst of these trials. And if we endure this way, Peter says that our faith is more valuable than gold. Why is that? Well, gold, even gold perishes. But this type of faith will endure forever. So trials are brief, and they test the genuineness of our faith. Let me give you one more point. 
trials lead to honor from God on Judgment Day. Notice in verse 7 that Peter speaks of praise, glory, and honor when Christ returns. Now, we know, of course, that he is going to receive honor and glory, right? But also, notice here, he, in this passage, is talking about God giving us honor when he returns. Not that we deserve it like he does. But if we respond to these trials, we will receive praise from God. Does that blow you away or what? I mean, because I don't know about you, I think it's kind of a universal language. When somebody gives you a heartfelt word of praise, doesn't it always hit home? You know, when somebody writes you a note, somebody gives you a word of affirmation that, you know, they've kind of given some thought to it, and it means something from them to you. Oftentimes, we get a little teary-eyed because it just means something. Our spirit craves that. So can you imagine what it will be like standing before the Lord on Judgment Day and hearing praise and honor from really the only one who matters to have the Lord shower praise down on you because you have endured trials to the glory of God. Boy, that should make us see trials differently, amen? That should make us want to say, you know what, I'm going to keep pressing on. I'm going to dig my spiritual heels in and not let Satan run roughshod over me and my life and my family because God has something in store for this and I look forward to that day when I will hear, well done, good and faithful servants. Because I didn't give up in the trial. I persevered in the trial and I grew in the trial and God gives me some praise from this, but in reality, he deserves all of it reflected back to him because he gave me the strength in the first place. Because of these truths, as it says in verse 8 and 9, you can love Christ, though you don't see him physically like Peter got to see him as an apostle. You can believe in Christ and rejoice in the midst of trials, not just in eternity, but you can do it now. I don't think anything gets the world's attention perhaps more than when they see Christians who have their legs kicked out from under them and yet they can still praise God. Everybody stands up and says, what's going on here? And as you persevere to the end, you will receive the outcome of your faith, the salvation of our souls, as it says. Before we move on, I just want to take a second here. Absorb what we just read about trials and the testing of our salvation. Trials are hard. And I'm guessing that all of us this morning are going through something right now. But please, remember what has just been said from the Word of God. This isn't just my words. The trials are brief in light of eternity. That should motivate us to endure God allows trials also to strengthen our faith. Look at how God has done this in your past. And don't give up in the midst of the trial that you're going through right now. And then finally, fix your eyes on that day when you will stand before the Lord. And surely you want to hear the praise from His mouth. So let us live that way. Amen, church? Let's get to the third part, the privilege of our salvation. 
the privilege of our salvation. Let's read verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you, though those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What a fascinating little passage this is. So Peter begins by discussing these Old Testament prophets. They spoke about the salvation that we now enjoy. But notice that these prophets, they weren't doing it in a passive manner. They were really trying to understand the things that they were talking about, right? They were inquiring diligently. They were digging into these things of which they were speaking about. You know, I was thinking about this week. Can you imagine, say, an Isaiah or a Jeremiah, and he's got scrolls out in front of him, the prophecies maybe from himself or other prophets, and they're, they're studying these things, and they're thinking about, hey, has this already come to pass, and how might this come to pass in the future? I mean, they were wrestling with these things, these predictions they were making. And it says that the Spirit of Christ, meaning the Holy Spirit, revealed to the prophets that there was going to come a Christ, a Messiah, and that this Messiah was going to suffer, and that there would also be glories afterward for the Messiah. All that stuff is spoken about in the Old Testament. Now, the prophets, they wanted to know more. They're like you and I, right? I would want to know more. What would he be like, and when would he appear? But God didn't reveal everything to them, did he? Instead, he revealed to them, hey, you know what? You're actually not serving yourselves, but you're serving people who are going to come after you. Who's that? That's us, isn't it? That's us. They would experience those things, not you. And when Jesus comes on the scene, it's interesting. He agrees with this. In Matthew 13, 17, he said to his disciples, quote, Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So they were longing to see Jesus come. Jesus arrived, and he said, this is what everybody was waiting for. And church, we're here now in that day, amen? We're incredibly blessed to live in our day when these prophecies have come to pass and we live on the other side of the cross. Interestingly, though, not only did the Old Testament prophets look forward to this day, but did you catch the very end of the passage that angels long to look into these things? It's really fascinating. One writer says that Greek word there, look, conveys the idea of a person trying to stretch out and to look through a window, right? So imagine somebody's trying to, they can't quite see it all, and so they're stretching out because they want to see what's in that window. That's the idea about these angels who are looking into salvation. You say, why were they looking into salvation? Well, maybe perhaps they were thinking about the future aspect of it when Christ returns, and they don't, they're not omniscient, they don't know everything, and so maybe they're trying to understand, you know, they're, maybe they're doing some prophecy debates about what's going to happen at the end of time, I don't know. 
But I think perhaps also what Peter's getting at is that angels are looking into salvation because this is something that an angel never experiences. Do you realize that? God created angels good. Now we know, of course, that some of them fell. Rebellious angels, demons. Satan led a rebellion, right? And God judged those angels, and there's no opportunity for salvation. The rest of the angels who were good, they never rebelled, so they never needed salvation. They're not looking for redemption because they don't need it. An angel is not going to go around singing amazing grace. They didn't fall into sin like you and I do. But they see how important it is. They see that we preach about it all the time. They see that we sing about it all the time. They know this is something marvelously important. And so they are curious about it. They're interested to know about it. But what's fascinating, too, is that they will actually never know it themselves. Some people say that perhaps we might have kind of an additional layer of our relationship with the Lord because we have experienced His grace and His mercy that they never needed to experience. And so we can sing Amazing Grace. And there's something in our hearts that these angels will never go through. But you and I have experienced that Amazing Grace. Amen? Well, as I said, this is such an encouraging passage. I hope your heart was stirred here this morning. Yes, life is filled with trials. I'm glad that the scripture does not skirt over those things, lays it out in front of us. But we are reminded this morning of God's purpose in trials and of the great salvation we possess and will possess forever. And as we close, I thought we would spend some time in prayer. Blessing God, praising God as Peter does to begin this passage. So I'm going to have a time of prayer where we all pray together. And I will speak some things that we should praise God for out loud. But I want to encourage you in your own hearts to join with everybody. Praying in your own heart. Praise you God for this. Praise you God for that. To have a room full of just prayers lofting up to the Lord for our great salvation that we enjoy. May it never grow old to God's people. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, what a remarkable passage from your word. We have taken in so much this morning. Thank you for your truth that transforms our hearts and our minds. God, we praise you that you have caused us to be born again. Lord, we remember what it was like to be dead in our sins and trespasses, to live in darkness and without hope, but you made us alive. We thank you for that. And we take no credit at all 
for your amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And Lord, we praise you for a living hope, not a man-made hope. but one that is a future certainty. Lord, we thank you for the protection of our eternal inheritance that no one will take it from us. What a joy to know that the most important thing, our salvation, is kept by you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for protecting us. Oh, how we need it. That when we are weary and discouraged, which is very often, you give us strength. When we sin, you forgive us. When we grow apathetic, you stir us. And Lord, we praise you this morning for our privileged salvation as we stand on this side of the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the yes and amen to all the promises in the Old Testament what they were speaking about and searching, trying to understand what these things meant, how you brought it all to pass with the cross and the empty tomb. You deserve all praise. And we declare the closing words from the New Testament book of Jude, where it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.